And hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Waterfront Church, uh, and it's great to get to be here with you uh, as we worship together. A little side note, notice something that we had some animal shoe prints going on. Uh, Dr. Brandy had some animal shoe prints, and then Denver had the zebra print shoes, too. It's high class, just, uh, just in case you want to rewind and check that out. Also, one little side note, today is our own Josiah Gross's 30th birthday. Josiah's there at the back. Very good. Kevin, you just wherever you are, just say, happy birthday, Josiah. Josiah on the count of three. One, two, three. Happy birthday, Josiah. There you go, dude. Thousands of people wishing you a happy birthday. All right, there you go. Hey, great deal. Isn't it great, the magic of video during the coronavirus era? Anyway, hey, if you got your Bibles, open to Galatians chapter 5 and then Genesis 43. Galatians 5 and Genesis 43. Our study today starts with this question. Uh, when you were a kid, did someone ever tell you to play nice? All right, when you were a kid, did someone ever tell you to play nice? I can tell you that my grandmother... That was like her catch-all phrase for any of us when we were uh, messing around or needed to be uh, uh, reined in just a little bit. I had uh, uh, three cousins, uh, all boys, and uh, we got in so much trouble together uh, growing up. My little brother with us also, so five dudes just causing all kinds of trouble. And it didn't matter what we were doing, we would hear my grandmother yell from the other room, hey, play nice. And here's the deal. As I've gotten older, I've come to understand what play nice actually means, okay? Play nice means treat people the way you would like to be treated, okay? That's really what play nice really boils down to. And I've actually started doing that with my own children, okay? Say something bad happens in our house. Each kid kind of has a different role that they play, and some of you may fall into the same category. So our sweet daughter, Lulu. Lulu's the oldest. Lulu's the pleaser. Lulu's the one who who knows the rules because she's been around the longest, and Lulu's the one that anytime something bad happens or something's been done to her, she is the one uh, who uh, the, is the uh, the gesture. Have you ever had that person in your life? Where, I mean, she's the one who something will happen, and she'll turn to look to the authority and go, like, do you see? The evidence is clear. I got a raw deal here. I mean, she's the one, the hand gesture, the evidence is clear. And when Lulu does that, we don't want her to learn to be a tattletale. So what do we yell at her? Lulu. Play nice, right? Then Jack is the opposite side. Jack, because again, very, very type A, very, uh, very rigid in his mindset. Jack is the one who is always offering up what punishment should fit the crime. Some of you are that person too. Something bad will happen, and Jack will be like, "Oh, time out for a month." You know, I mean, oh, grounded for a year. I mean, I mean, he's the one who wants to dole out the punishment immediately. And what do we have to do? Because he is not the judge; he's just the brother. We yell at Jack. Jack. Play nice, right? Harper is the funniest one. Harper is the one, Harper loves to point out that other people are sinners. Now that is a preacher's kid if ever I've heard of one in my entire life. Harper's always the one and she'll see something bad happen and Harper will go, dad, is Jack a sinner? And we'll be like, yes, Harper, he's a sinner. We're all sinners, but Harper, play nice, right? And then Zeke, Zeke, because he doesn't quite have the words, he's too. Zeke is the embodiment of what all of us feel. He's a thrasher, okay? He's the thrasher. Zeke is the one that if something bad happens or you tell him no, God forbid you tell the two-year-old no, all of a sudden he turns into the thrasher and he just has to find something to flip over or to throw. That's just the way that it goes. He's voicing his displeasure. And when he does that, what do we do? Zeke, Play nice, right? The idea of playing nice, treat people the way that you want to be treated. Now, here's what's interesting. This is nothing on my kids. All of us have a moment where if someone has wronged us, if someone has wronged society, if someone has hurt us, if someone has caused us problems, 
Our initial response is to look at them and to feel like we are owed something from them or we have to punish them like we talked about. We need somebody else to see us make that gesture that we got a raw deal. We need to point out that they're a sinner or it just makes you want to thrash something because you're just so frustrated with the circumstances. I want us to look at this real quick. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and we're going to look at verses 22 through 26 and we find out in these verses... Whenever we need to play nice, whenever we need to treat people the way that, the, uh, that we would want to be treated, the fruit of the Spirit shows up, and then it talks on the back end of this passage that when we don't involve the fruits of the Spirit, that we behave in a way that provokes outrage from someone else. It causes the hate to keep spinning rather than letting it die with us. Look at what it says, Galatians 5, verse 22. The first part of this passage is our checklist of what happens when we live in the Spirit. Look at what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There may be many of you who've studied this passage many, many times before. I moved that this morning, a lot of the power is not in verses 22 and 23, but in verses 24 through 26 to follow. Look at what it says next. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified to the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, look at this, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Underline, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. When we have to be told by God Almighty to play nice, in a lot of circumstances, it's the end of Galatians chapter 5. It's us coming to a point where we feel wronged, we feel hurt, we feel like someone has crossed the line with us, and then we feel like at that point, ooh, we deserve to be able to put them in their place. But that's not the fruit of the Spirit. When we walk with God, we concede this idea of, of again, provoking and envying one another in exchange for living by the fruits of the Spirit. This word fruit is very important. Fruit doesn't just show up. Fruit shows up after a time where the cultivation, where again, uh, we're watering, we're fertilizing, where this thing has grown over time, all of a sudden fruit is produced. The longer you walk with God, the more fruit that's produced in your life. That's when love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and listen to the last one, and self-control. Self-control is something that's a product of walking with God for an extended period of time. When we do that, good things begin to happen. And if we don't walk with God, we don't need to be surprised when we get caught up in the cycle of hate, provoking and envying one another, becoming conceited out for ourselves, and we need to, just like the children, be told to play nice, to put others before ourselves. Now, just for the record... It's not just children or my children that struggle with this. I struggled with this as well. If you don't learn to play nice as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a disciple, then you're going to limit yourself, and a lot of the things that you've worked for will end up being taken away from you. I got an example of that. Back when I was in college, I was starting to walk with the Lord again, but I was not living a life of discipleship. I've told you guys different portions of that story before, but uh, it all centers around I was engaged to somebody. We ended up breaking off the engagement at the time. I was playing lacrosse at Oklahoma State University, and uh, then the absolute unthinkable happened. Right after she and I had broken up, 
All of a sudden, I'm waiting tables at the finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster, one night. And while I'm there waiting tables at Red Lobster, one of the guys on the lacrosse team comes in with my ex-fiance on a date. They walk back. This will show you how old I am. There was a smoking section back in the day in the restaurant. That was where all the employees hung out. And in fact, uh, my uh, ex-fiance was, uh, was, on, uh, was, uh, was on staff at Red Lobster at the same time, too. She worked as a hostess. So they walk to the back of the smoking section, and I'll never forget, I walk back, and I see him, and I see her, and I felt so betrayed. And I'm telling you, this is just the way the mindset works, because he was my teammate. Even though she and I had broken up, I just got so, so angry. I got so frustrated, and I began to plot in my mind all these terrible things that I wished would happen to my friend. This was not a fruit of the Spirit. This was that envying and provoking, being conceited that we hear about in this next part of the passage. And because I didn't deal with it in a godly way, it ended up taking something from me. I didn't go back and try to beat him up that night. He was a really big guy. I'm mean, six foot three. He outweighed me by 45 pounds. Uh, back then, I probably caught up to him now, uh, but he outweighed me by 45 pounds back then. Now, I'll never forget, I had lacrosse practice that following Monday. And when I got to lacrosse practice, the rule in lacrosse, by the way, is you can hit someone as hard as you can as long as your gloves are together and you've got a stick that you're holding, your lacrosse stick that you're holding in between the two. And so here's what happened. And this guy's coming across the middle, and I have an opportunity to make a legal hit, but it's in practice. It's not in a game, and we're on the same team. But he's coming across, and all of a sudden I think to myself, I'm going to give him a shot because I saw him at Red Lobster with my ex-girlfriend, with my ex-fiance. So he comes across the middle, and when he does, man, I'm telling you, if you have leverage, you can take somebody, even if they're bigger than you, off their feet. And he comes across, and man, I, I shove my fists up and punch as hard as I can, and all of a sudden, all six foot three of him decletes and falls on the ground. It knocks his breath out of him, and he's rolling around on the ground. Well, our coach was a graduate of Navy. Jim Hedrick was his name. Jim Hedrick runs up and all of a sudden he's grabbing my face mask and he's going, what is wrong with you, Randalls? Why would you do that? He's your teammate. Why would you behave that way? He's your teammate. And all of a sudden, one of our other teammates, a kid from Chicago, runs up and whispers in Coach's ear, I'm guessing he took his girlfriend out the other night, Coach. And all of a sudden you see Coach Hedrick's eyes get real big and he goes, oh, run it again. And he moves on to something different. Now here's what's interesting. That was the last lacrosse practice I ever went to. After that, that anger that came out of me, I didn't want to be that guy anymore. I couldn't believe that I had done that to a guy that had just taken out a girl that I wasn't even dating. I couldn't believe that I had done that to a guy that was my teammate. I couldn't believe that I had done that in practice of all places when he wasn't expecting it. I had been conceited. I had envied, and I had tried to provoke my rival. Now listen, some of you are like, man, you're reading a whole lot into that. In the end, because I couldn't play nice, that was the last of my college athletic career. That was the last moment, the last play, the last day. I couldn't stay because I couldn't play nice. Now there are some of you, if you're really honest, there's reconciliation that God has in your future there are some beautiful reconnections that he has set aside for you. But you're going to have to decide that you're going to play nice, that you're going to treat other people the way you would want to be treated, and not because they deserve it, but because you desire for God to be glorified in your life above all else.
If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. A disciple produces fruit no matter who's around or what's happening. Let me say that again. A disciple produces fruit no matter who's around, no matter whose atriums or what's happening, all right? No matter who's around or what's happening. Okay, we'll have to fix that. Now listen, no matter what your circumstances are, when you walk with God and you truly submit to him in all things, you'd be shocked at the way he will provide a razor-thin path for you to do the right thing, even when it seems like one is not present. I've wondered over the years, what kind of friendship could have developed between me and that man? What kind of witness could have happened on the lacrosse team if I had just been able to play nice? If you're taking notes, our big million-dollar question today is this. How do we play nice with people who've hurt us? How do we play nice with people who've hurt us? We're about to jump back into our story of Joseph, and the reconciliation process has been sent into hyperdrive uh, when it comes to uh, when it or sent into overdrive when it comes to uh, J- uh, Joseph and his brothers. Now flip over to Genesis forty-three, and we're going to start in verses twenty-six through twenty-eight. Here's what it says next. And remember, the brothers have shown back up. They've brought Benjamin with them, and they uh, Joseph knows that it's the brothers, but the brothers don't realize. It's their brother Joseph yet. Now look at what happens in verses 26 through 28. Addressing the question, how do we play nice with people who've hurt us? Joseph's about to lay out the path for us. Verse 26, it says, When Joseph came home, the brothers presented to him the gifts that they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. Look at this. He asked them how they were, and then he said, How's your aged father that you told me about? Is he still living? Look at verse 28. They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down to pay him honor. Stop right there for just a minute. Remember, these are the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, that caused him an incredible amount of abuse that lasted for decades. And what we find in this passage is when Joseph sees them, he comes into the house, they're about to have dinner together, and what's the first thing he says? He finds common ground with them and says, how's your aged father? If you're taking notes, write this down. How do we play nice with people who've hurt us? Number one, find genuine common ground. Write that down. Find genuine common ground. Notice he doesn't talk about the weather. Notice he doesn't talk about something frivolous. Notice he doesn't talk about something that just matters to him. Joseph walks in the room and very intentionally, the powerful man of God that he is, says, tell me about your father. He's genuinely concerned because it's his father too. There are some of you that God is stirring the winds of reconciliation with you. He's stirring the winds of reconciliation with someone who you've been at odds with for a very, very long time. I want to encourage you. There is no way Joseph just thought of this question off the cuff. This was a question he genuinely wanted to know, and he established a genuine relationship with the brothers. He found genuine common ground from the very, very beginning. There are some of you that need to play nice with the way you begin your conversations with people who've hurt you. Are you doing what we talked about in Galatians? Are you trying to provoke them? Are you trying to establish yourself as over them? Or are you truly looking for common ground? One of the saddest things about the coronavirus era is what we're going to lose once we get to the other side of this. I love to shake people's hand. In fact, when I was a kid, my dad had such a good handshake and my granddad's had good handshakes. 
I wanted to learn how to shake a hand. And so I remember I would practice. Maybe that's just a weird Texas thing. We would practice shaking each other's hand so that we could have that good, strong, firm handshake. The handshake was born in the Old West because it was your way of showing to the opposition that you did not have a gun in your hand that you had shown up to the meeting unarmed and that you were doing your very best to keep an open mind in discussion. So you would extend your hand to say, I don't have my gun. They would extend their hand and say, I don't have a gun either. And then you would touch to symbolize that this was a meeting that was going to have great significance and that you were going to listen to one another. It's said that that may go away. We're going to have to find out different ways that we can do that. Genuine common ground is letting the opposition know I am open to a real discussion. I am listening to what you have to say. There are some of you who can't find reconciliation right now because you have to be on top, because you've got to be the one in control, because you've got to be the one in charge. You've got to be the one with the quip for every word that they say. You've got to be the one that ends up looking better. There has to be a winner, and there has to be a loser. Part of reconciliation is realizing our desire is that we could all win, that nobody has to lose, that we could finally come together. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. You make your intentions known by tone and content from the moment you see one another. You make your intentions known by tone and content from the moment you see one another. Some of you would say, how do you get that from those three verses? Joseph's every move is so intentional because it's the moment he's dreamed about since the day he was sold into slavery, that the vision could be fulfilled and his family could be made whole. Now, just for the record, there are some of you that hear this and you just go, uh, does this really work? Yeah, in so many aspects of life. This isn't just for people that you're at odds with. Do you realize anytime you need something from somebody else, if you'll go into it looking for a genuine connection to be established, you would not, you'd be so surprised, you wouldn't believe the things that God could do in that circumstance. And by the way, if there's ever a city that understands this, it's probably this one. There are many of you that work for the State Department. I was reading an article the other day that was talking about how State Department visits are so much more difficult right now over Skype and over these, uh, these WebEx meetings and Zoom meetings because you can't feel and read the tone of the room. It makes it more difficult to find common ground. When we find genuine common ground with one another, they'll go with you and they assume positive intent as the discussion is going on. So I had to go down to DC water not too long ago. We've been trying to establish that four-inch water line so that we can install a sprinkler system and build a balcony here um, in our new church space. And I'll never forget, I'm going in and I need something from DC water. This is a, a project that will most likely take several months with them, uh, but with the, this was right before everything hit with coronavirus, and so there was one day that they still had the office open, and I was talking with our, our planners, and they said, hey, you might as well go up there if you have the time today and see if they help you. Well, I get on the elevator at DCRA to go upstairs to where DC Water is, and while we're on our way to the, ele- while I'm on my way to the elevator, a man comes in holding a to-go box of Korean barbecue as he gets on the elevator. Now, I don't know how wide your lens is, okay, how wide the camera angle is, but I love food, genuinely and, I mean, honestly, I love food of all kind. And here's the deal. He's on the elevator. I'm going up to D.C. Water because I need something from them, and I see this guy on the elevator, and he's got this box of delicious-smelling Korean barbecue, 
I look over at him and I go, dude, where did you get that? He's kind of caught off guard. He said from this place over here in Southwest, I said, it smells like Bonchon that we've got over in Southeast. He goes, man, I love Bonchon. He goes, but this place will change your life if you come and try it. I said, no way. And remember, this is just an elevator conversation. I said, man, I go, I really need to. It sounds delicious. And he goes, that'd be great. And he goes, you headed to DC Water? I said, yep. And he goes, ah, well, good luck to you. And he walks off the elevator. Well, we've had this genuine discussion where I wasn't trying to get anything from him. I'm just talking to him. And I genuinely love food. We get off the elevator. He walks to the back. I sit in the lobby for 45 minutes. I sit in the lobby waiting for them to call my name. Finally, the person at the front desk says, Mr. Zach Randalls, are you here? And I said, yes, ma'am, I sure am. I said, uh, uh, and she goes, what are you doing here today? And all of a sudden, the guy at the back that I had talked to, his desk is right behind where the receptionist desk is. All of a sudden, his head pops up and he goes, Korean barbecue guy. I said, yeah, that's me. He goes, you've been waiting for 45 minutes? He goes, I wish you just said something. Come on back, man. He goes, let's get you taken care of today so that you can go back and get you some of that good barbecue. It established this common ground, genuine discussion, and what has taken groups two months, I got done in a single day because of this kind young man and how he took care of us. The end of that story is pretty special as well. The head boss for the office at DCRA was a man that we worked with when we were trying to get our water passed through for the building in the first place. He was so kind. I had reason to hoot and holler and raise heck and and just be upset. And instead, I just tried to be kind in everything. He remembered the previous interaction. And even the head boss said, you're going to leave today with your permit. He said, you're good people. He said, you could have been angry, but instead you've been kind to us, and we in turn will be kind to you. I mean this with all my heart. Play nice. It's better for everybody, including you. Play nice. Treat others the way you would want to be treated, and that simple, easy fact could end up changing the entire world around you for Christ. If you're taking notes, little question. Are you seeking reconciliation with someone you still consider to be pure evil? Let me say that again. Are you seeking reconciliation with someone you still consider to be pure evil? Spoiler alert, you won't find it. If you have someone in your life that you go, well, they're the devil incarnate, they're awful, that's a pure demon over there, that's somebody who uh, there's really just nothing good that ever comes from them from their life, and uh, they pretty much are a waste of space. But Lord... I really want you to bring reconciliation between us. Guess what? You ain't going to find it. You're not going to find reconciliation with somebody that you consider to be pure evil. My Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? That means that every stinking one of us is a sinner. Every stinking one of us have had moments when we've been imperfect and when we've come up short. We've got to come to a point where if you desire reconciliation, you realize I'm imperfect They're imperfect, and maybe, just maybe, God in his infinite perfection can bring peace to this moment. But if you think that they're pure evil, don't be surprised when that hate will continue its ugly cycle. Are you seeking reconciliation with someone you still consider to be pure evil? You're not going to find it until you begin to find that common ground. Every single one of us can find common ground. Some of you would say, but you don't know my neighbor. You don't know the noise they make. 
You don't know the smells that come from their apartment. You don't know how awful they've treated me. You don't know the way that they've hurt me. Guys, I love you. The path back to victory on this is to find common ground. Even with your deepest, darkest of enemies, there is something that you can have in common. Even if it's that you're both sinners and you are the one who's saved by grace, striving like mad that they might know God the way that you do. Look at what happens next in the passage. Verse, chapter 43, verses 29 through 31. It says next, it says, As Joseph looked down, or looked about, he saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son. Now stop right there for just a minute. This is a big deal, because even though there are multiple brothers around the table, his blood brother, all the brothers are basically his half-brothers, his blood brother, his one full blood brother is Benjamin, and he's not seen him before. And so what happens in this moment? He looks down the table. He sees Benjamin, his full blood brother, his mother's son. And he asks, look at this. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Look at verse 30 and 31. This is so real. Look at what happens. Deeply moved at the side of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. Underline, look for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. There's such power in that verse. Underline, he went to his private room and wept there. And after he had washed his face, underline, washed his face, then he came out controlling himself and said, serve the food. Stop right there. I love the end of that passage because what's happened here here is he's overcome with emotion. He sees his blood brother. He's been waiting for this moment, longing for this moment since he's gone into captivity. And what happens? He sees his brother and he goes, ah, so, uh, so you're Benjamin, you're Benjamin. What would they say on Saturday Night Live years ago? I'm feeling verklempt, right? He sees Benjamin. He's filled with such great emotion, but he's got to keep the composure together. He's got to figure out if his brothers are truly changed men or if they're the ones they've used to be. But he, this moment is so fragile. And so what does he do? He gets up and he says, I need to excuse myself for a minute. He goes back to his private room. He weeps bitterly. All the pain and the hurt that's been caused to him. He weeps bitterly in the side room. And then... He washes his face so that they can't see he's been crying. And then he walks back out and goes, serve the food. Serve the food. Let's get this thing rolling. You got to picture this. This is not just to build up drama. What Joseph does here is a powerful key to reconciliation. There are some of you watching this, and you are deeply emotional creatures it's a beautiful thing to be emotional, but listen to me. You must put emotion in its proper place if you are ever going to find reconciliation. If you're taking notes, write that down. How do we play nice with people who've hurt us? Number one, find genuine common ground. And number two, put emotion in its proper place. In this circumstance, the reconnection with the brothers is so fragile it's so breakable. It's something that could tear apart at the seams if too much is made of it. And what Joseph does, when he gets overwhelmed with emotion, it's not time for that emotion to come out in front of the brothers. There's too much hurt there. So what does he do? He excuses himself. He exhales. He vomits that emotion in private. And then cleaning up his face, not carrying the baggage in of what he's just navigated, then he walks back in and continues the discussion. 
There's two types of people, typically. Bottlers and vomiters when it comes to emotion. The bottlers are the ones that go, don't show emotion. Push it down. Push it down, right? Hide that emotion. Pretend that everything is fine. Ugh. If that's you, you're going to die of a stroke. If that's you, you're going to come to a point where once you've bottled it, it will explode out of you. If that's you, bottling it up is not the healthy way to be. But listen to me. Some of your vomiters, the vomiters are the ones who you are so emotional you wear your emotions so heavily on your sleeve, if you feel it, bleh, I mean, you have to experience it with the whole rest of the room. You ever had somebody throw up in the middle of the room before? It's the worst, all right? We have four lunatic children, okay? They're wonderful, okay, wonderful. God, heaven sent to us, okay, but raging maniacs. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, just great kids. Vomit is a part of our existence at this point, okay? And we will sometimes have a child throw up in the middle of the living room, and it's at that point we stop and we go, sweetheart, son, please, can you try to make it to the sink next time? Or can you try to make it to the commode next time, to the toy, or to the toilet next time? Please, just try to make it there. It would be a whole lot easier if you do it that way. There's some of you who are emotional vomiters, and the reason you can find no reconciliation is because you are so volatile that the person God desires for you to reconcile with cannot be safely in the room with you. You got to come to the point where you follow Joseph's example. He does not bottle his emotion, but he doesn't vomit it on the brothers before it's time either. Put emotion in its proper place. If you're taking notes, write this down. Don't, be, don't let misplaced emotions rob you of what God is gloriously shaping. Let me say that again. Don't let misplaced emotion rob you of what God is gloriously shaping. I'll give you an example of this. In pastoring world, there are some times we have to go do hospital visits before corona. We would do hospital visits. And there were days that it was just so awful, something someone was navigating. And because we had seen them healthy and then we had seen them fall apart, You'd walk into the room and there were some days where it just took your breath away because somebody, somebody truly went downhill that quickly with their health. Dr. Brandy, you may have had some of those moments too. And it takes your breath away. I'll never forget a man who discipled me and mentored me and had to do hospital visits, Jerry Huggins. He said, do your best not to cry in the hospital room. I said, Why? I said, isn't it good if they see a little emotion? He said, a little emotion. But he said, it's their moment. It's their grief. He said, my discipleship moment to you is to teach you. Sometimes you cry in the car. Cry a little in the hospital room, sob in the car. Is that good advice? It's still emotion, but you put it in its proper place. You put it where it's meant to go so that you allow them to have their moment and their grief. And then... You deal with your secondary because it's their father, it's their son, it's their spouse, it's their friend. And for you, you are called to be a help and not a hindrance. Just for the record, there were some times in church work when I'd be booked to preach an outside event like a youth camp or a revival. And then something would happen at the church I was working at or something would happen uh, on, on a staff situation. And then all of a sudden, I'd get upset and I'd get angry on the night that I was supposed to preach somewhere. 
And I'd call my dad and I'd go, oh, I'm so mad because 22 years dad had been on the road preaching. 22 years of experience where something bad would happen to him, but he'd have a revival to preach that night or he'd have a youth camp service to preach that night. And I'd go, dad, I'm just so mad. I'm just so mad. And he'd go, whoa, whoa, whoa. He'd say, son, you have a right to be mad. He said, but right now, he said, you need to get ready to preach. He said, those people didn't do anything wrong to deserve your second best. He said, the Lord deserves your very, very best for this moment. He said, put it behind you for a few minutes and allow the Lord to speak through you. There are some of you who are missing out on great moments of reconciliation because of over-emotion or because you bottle it and you pretend like it's not there at all. Joseph doesn't do that. He goes to the back, expels the emotion, and then washes his face so that he's not carrying baggage back into the room. By the way, a verse that I think I've quoted just as often as any other verse recently is Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. For any of you struggling uh, with fear, with anger, uh, with trying to figure out uh, where to place your emotions when everything seems volatile, man, Proverbs 29, 11 is a great verse to memorize. Here's what it says. It says, Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his anger. Underline gives full vent to his anger. But a wise man keeps himself under control. What I love about this passage is it doesn't say not to be frustrated from time to time. It says that a fool gives full vent ah, to his anger or to her anger. When you come to a point where you just go, I'm so mad, I'm so upset, light this candle, right? I'm just going to explode all over this situation. I'm so angry. Ah! to the point that you go way up and then you begin to come back down on the other side. The proverb writer there says, if that's you, you're a stinking fool. Some of you husbands and wives, does that verse strike a chord? A fool gives full vent to their anger. A fool goes, they're really going to respond better after I light this candle and explode. That never, ever works. The end of the verse says, and a wise person exercises self-control. You'd say, but they're my closest friend. They get it. But they're my spouse. They signed on for this when they said I do. Nobody signed on to be your kicking dummy. But they're my child. They will respect me. There are better ways to get respect, to get respect than to vent your anger on full. You ever gotten in the car before and you turn the air conditioner on full blast? It's so funny because the way our car is, I'll turn that air conditioner on, but the little Kia that I drive, it's got two settings basically. There's four settings, but really two settings. There's not hard enough and then hurricane west wind. I mean, those are the only, those are the only gauges that I have in my car. And I'm telling you, it gets to the point where when I turn it on full vent, shh, I mean, it blows so hard and you can't even hear anything. When Autumn and I are riding in that car together, she'll be like, you cannot put it on three or four. All right. It needs to stay on one or two. I don't care if we're hot. I can't hear a word that you say when the vent is turned fully up. The same is true for those who are close to us. You desire reconciliation? A fool gives full vent to his anger. You throw so much at them, so much emotion, so much passion, they don't hear a word that you have to say anyway. A wise person keeps himself under control. It begs the question. This is about as honest a question as I can give you. You ready? Are you making it weird? Are you making it weird? 
by venting, by bottling? Are you making it weird? And is that the reason that reconciliation can't take place? There's some of you, and you have got all the tools in your toolbox to make this work well, for the Lord to do something in your time that is truly earth-shaking, that is generational-changing. Generation-changing. Do you put emotion in its proper place, or do you make it weird for everybody? Look at our last set of verses, and we'll close today. Now Genesis 43, verses 32 through 34. Here's what it says to close out this passage. It says, They served Joseph by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians ate with him by themselves. Now look at this. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. Underline, for that is detestable to Egyptians. And the men had been seated before him, look at this, in the order of their ages, underline in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at each other in astonishment. When the portions were served to them from Joseph's table, look at this, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anybody else, underline five times as much as anybody else. So when they feasted, so they, so they feasted and drank freely with them, underline drank freely with them. Now here's the deal. When I was writing this sermon, this set of verses really threw me for a loop. And then finally, bing, it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I want to impart it to you today as well. So much power in these last few verses. If you're taking notes, how do we play nice with people who've hurt us? Number one, find genuine common ground. Number two, put emotion in its proper place. And number three, don't expect perfection. Don't expect perfection. These verses are full of of incredible imperfection. It starts off with this situation where the Egyptians are incredibly racist. They hate the Hebrews so much so, Joseph is the boss, so he sits by himself. Then it says the Egyptians sit in another section, and then the Hebrew brothers sit into another section. So this moment of reconciliation is not perfect. In any situation, there is still racism that's present, and God can still reconcile the group. Not only that, it says that the brothers are seated in birth order, that there is still some weird family dynamic taking place there where instead of them being equals, that some are seen as higher than others. And then listen to this, even Joseph, the one who symbolizes the godly man pursuing reconciliation, even Joseph treats Benjamin better than the others. From top to bottom, from the godly Joseph to the Egyptians that are just hanging around in the room, to the brothers, to Benjamin, everyone in the room is deeply imperfect. Some of you are missing reconciliation because what you have in your mind is that reconciliation is the moment when all of you will be perfect when everything is going to be perfect, when everything is just going to fall into place and be exactly like you've pictured it in your stinking mind. Can I tell you a secret? Reconciliation becomes possible when you realize, I'm a sinner, they're a sinner, but thanks be to God that we have Jesus Christ to bridge the gap for us. If you don't take anything else away from today, I pray that you would take this next quote. Are you ready? A huge step in reconciliation is realizing that perfection starts and ends with Jesus. Let me say that again. A huge step in reconciliation is realizing that perfection starts and ends with Jesus. There are so many of you, and I fall into this category myself, 
Before my father and I reconciled, I had this picture in my mind that I would tell him off for the awful things he had done or I felt like he had done to me, that I would tell him those horrible things, that he would fall on his knees, beg me for forgiveness, and that then from that point forward, he would be the perfect father, I would be the perfect son, and that's how we would move forward. Can I tell you that's not in any way, shape, or form how it happened? Reconciliation with my father that I dreamed of for years came together when I realized my dad was not God, he was just a man. It came when my dad realized I wasn't going to be the Division I football star. I wasn't built for it. I don't have the genetics. I was just me. And that together we could be something very, very special. We could be father and son, a discipleship team, seeking to live out the Great Commission together. It actually was much more beautiful than I ever could have envisioned. Jesus is the only one that was perfect, the only stinking one. Have you come to a point where you've realized that? Or do you expect people who are lost and broken to immediately behave like Jesus top to bottom? Even in this passage, God is up to something amazing with Joseph and his family but there is no such thing as a perfect family. Can I say that to you one more time? There is no such thing as a perfect family. Not this side of heaven. It's just the way that it works. I've got in my life something recently that has come to symbolize perfection. Some of you got these in the mail when we did our communion packets. They're called the Churches Alive brochures. And we printed these up and had them ready to give out at the church service on March the 15th. There's only one problem. The March 15th service didn't happen. On March 15th, thanks to coronavirus, all right, we now are watching online. And so that means we mailed these out, but we didn't get to give them away in person. So there are stacks and stacks of these here in the church building waiting for you guys to come back and to get them. But here's a problem. This is not what our church looks like anymore. It's group shots. It's small group pictures where everyone's gathered together. There's pictures of my kids and other kids in the Christmas play. There's pictures of Night to Shine. There's pictures of baptisms where people are in the same water together, something that's outlawed in our city right now. There's pictures of people eating at Thanksgiving. Weddings. Bands standing side by side. When I look at this, I get sad because things can't be this way. And I've gotten to where I would look at this brochure and I would think to myself, will we ever get back there again? Will it ever be like this again? First of all, yeah, at some point, it's going to be something like this again. But this, to expect this today with the world that we live in now is ridiculous. That's not our world. That's not a reality. That's some fantasy now, I'm not telling you that you need to throw away any idea that things could get better. But if you can't be happy unless everything is perfect, you got problems. 
It just doesn't work that way. Reconciliation is not perfection. Reconciliation is realizing we are sinners saved by grace, and through Jesus Christ we can have a future. What does that look like? One last verse. Three verses, actually. Colossians chapter 3. And let's look briefly at verses 12 through 14. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Here's what Paul has to say about perfection. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not yet consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining on towards what's ahead. Look at verse 14. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We have got to come to a point. Actually, that was Philippians, not not Colossians. Let me jump back over with you. There are going to be all sorts of fun imperfections. That is a great verse, by the way. We've got to keep stop looking back and start looking ahead. Look at the verses here, Colossians 3, and now verses 12 through 14. Sorry, here's what it says. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. It's ironic how those two passages actually work well together. Philippians 3, uh, verses 12 through 14, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. How cool is it that God provided an incredibly imperfect moment for the sermon right here to illustrate the point? We bear with one another. We move forward together. We forgive whatever grievances that we may have in one another. Because why? We're not perfect. Only Jesus could be perfect. And if you're expecting perfection this side of heaven, you're not going to achieve it. It begs the final question. Are you looking for something that doesn't exist? Are you looking for your church's alive brochure in your life, in your relationship with your parents, in your relationship with your spouse, in your relationship with your kids, in your work environment, in your neighborhood, with the world at large? Are you looking for perfection? It's not going to happen this side of heaven. But it can still be good. Placed in the hands of Almighty God, it can still be good. Thanks for taking part in our imperfect worship service. We're not special because we hear the word of God. Scripture says that we're special because we do something with it when we've heard it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. At our church, we call this our time of reflection. Nothing mystical or magical about this time, but there is something powerful about considering the songs we've sung the sermon we've heard, and the scripture that we've read, and how we're different because of those things. If you're here today, I don't find it any coincidence that we've been studying the life of Joseph during this coronavirus pandemic, and we've been studying about bringing relationships together. The focus of all scripture is Jesus, that he's the answer specifically that he desires to knit your families back together, knit those friendships back together, bring peace and reconciliation where it seems like none exists. If you're here today 
and you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to start finding common ground, genuine common ground, not just talk about the weather, but I need to put in the time, and before I see that person who's hurt me, I need to put in the time and find a question to start the conversation with that I care about, that the other person genuinely cares about. I don't need to be patronizing, but I need to establish a genuine connection with them with nobody looking but just me. If that's you and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would put in the time to find a way to genuinely connect with that person. Now remember, that doesn't mean to open yourself up to be hurt anymore. It just means that you go open-handed like the old cowboys and say, I'm not here to hurt you. If that's you, I just want to pray for you that God would give you insight. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you for having the guts to do that. I promise you, with the power of the Holy Spirit, you are smart enough to figure out what those questions are to start that conversation. I'm going to pray for you, but I want to encourage you. Press pause and just start making a list of some of the things that this person has in common with you, even if it's something that seems frivolous, something that is a genuine connection. With me, Korean barbecue got us that DC water certificate so that we could move forward. God can use anything. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I've been starting off the discussion well, but I just get so emotional. Sometimes, whenever my dad and I were going through our point of reconciliation, I wanted so badly for this to happen. It wasn't that I wanted to erupt and tell him all those awful things. There got to a point where I just wanted to cry because I was so grateful that God had brought this moment about where something could happen. I want to encourage you, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me? Would you pray that I wouldn't strangle the moment with my emotion and that I also wouldn't be one who bottles it up and pretends like it doesn't happen because all that is is setting up another blow up. If you're here and you say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would find a way to cry in the back room and to wash my face before the second part of the conversation. If that's you, I want to pray for you. A fruit of the Spirit is self-control. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you. Very passionate people have this struggle. I'm in the boat with you. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you. But your prayer is very simple. God, develop in me the fruit of self-control. God, develop in me the fruit of self-control. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I've been living in the Churches Alive brochure. I've been expecting perfection. This moment that God has crafted for Joseph and his brothers starts with the racism of the Egyptians. It erupts in the birth order and the social hierarchy sin that exists in that society at the time. It then erupts in in Joseph behaving towards Benjamin and creating dissension among the brothers the same way that his father had done with him. None of that situation is perfect. And yet it doesn't have to be for reconciliation to happen. Maybe you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Would you pray that I'd stop expecting perfection? And that I would just allow God to be God. And I would trust that what he's crafting is good. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. 
if you just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you for your courage. If that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But I want you to pray this simple prayer. Perfection begins and ends with Jesus. That may be something that you write on the palm of your hand or with the dry erase marker on your window. Perfection begins and ends with Jesus. He's the only one that ever could be perfect. It's ridiculous for us to expect that of those around us or to expect that of ourselves. I love you guys. It was our prayer as a group before we even started that the Lord would begin to mend families, mend friendships from what's being recorded today on this video. I pray that you would listen well today and that the Lord would start something glorious in your days. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you so much for the story of Joseph and Lord, for the way that you were working powerfully in and through his life. Lord, I thank you for this journey of peace that was being developed in his family. And Lord, I pray that we would follow these same principles as we seek after you, that we would not provoke one another, that we would not envy and be conceited all about ourselves, but that we would seek after bearing fruit for you, that we would seek after walking with you and living for you in all things as disciples. Lord, for those who are here who have asked for prayer that you might help them find common ground, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would move in their heart and mind and provide with them that razor-thin path to genuine discussion with someone who has hurt them, that you would begin to do those healing works even right here and right now. You are not just the great healer of our bodies. You are the great healer of our hearts and our minds as well. Lord, I pray that you would bring healing by providing common ground. Lord, I also pray for those who are ripe with emotion, whether it's emotion that they've bottled up or emotion that they constantly vomit out. I pray that you would help them to put that emotion in its proper place and that they would do it unto you, exhibiting that self-control because they desire so greatly for peace to exist. And Lord, help us to remember only Jesus was perfect that the people who've hurt us, they were not perfect, they are not perfect, and they will not be perfect this side of heaven. Help us not to expect that. And Lord, I also pray you would help us not to expect that of ourselves. We cannot be perfect apart from the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you, God, for outlining this path for us. Bring reconciliation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.